This is Louisiana Considered on WWNL in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge. I'm Diane Maddock. Just ahead on today's show, we'll investigate why the Biden administration alleges 15 historically black colleges and universities, including Southern, have been shortchanged. And an edgy vampire myth and coming-of-age story, Let the Right One In, opens the season for Le Petit Theatre in the French Quarter. But first... This August was one of the hottest on record for the Gulf South, and those above-average temperatures have persisted into the fall. With the absence of federal or state guidelines for heat exposure, outdoor workers are more vulnerable. Danny MacArthur of the Gulf States Newsroom talks to construction workers and landscapers in one Mississippi town who are finding ways to navigate extreme temperatures on their own. Tomas Pablo has been working in construction and remodeling for eight years. This summer was the hottest he's experienced yet. Very hot. He was telling the temperature that it keep increasing, 98, 104, 105. And all he's been doing is staying hydrated and drinking water. That was Genesis Valdez translating. We're in Forest, Mississippi at El Pueblo. It's a Mississippi-based humanitarian group that serves immigrant communities in Louisiana and Alabama as well. Pablo has had to adjust to this heat. And it's not just him. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the agency that forecasts the weather, says Mississippi and Louisiana had their hottest August on record so far. Almost two months without rain. We haven't got rain in a, in a minute now, in a while. More than a month without rain. It's not just the heat. Mississippi and Louisiana are dealing with drought, too. But despite dangerous conditions, the vast majority of U.S. states do not have set standards for outdoor workers and heat exposure. And it doesn't exist on the federal level, either. Christy Ebby is a professor at the University of Washington. She researches how climate change impacts human health. She says these workers need more protection because they are at higher risk of heat illness and injury. This is one of the places where we understand the physiology, we understand how to get people's core body temperature down. It's pretty straightforward. And if you can protect workers and keep those core body temperatures down, it's helpful. It it really does save lives. In the absence of guidelines... Individual employers and workers are coming up with their own methods to protect themselves. Juan Simone Hernandez has been in construction work for 17 years, but the heat has even got to him this summer. Carolina Bermudez translated while he told the story. He treated his heat sickness by drinking an electrolyte beverage that's supposed to help with hydration. Now he makes sure to take breaks, and he says sometimes he and his coworkers take off earlier because of the heat. But the ideal, Hernandez says, would be to come into work earlier and set up a fan. If his boss had no problem with it, perhaps a fan or a tent. Whatever solution he comes up with, it may have to extend into fall. NOAA predicts that Louisiana, Mississippi, and most of Alabama will experience higher than normal temperatures through October. For the Gulf States Newsroom, I'm Danny McArthur. 
The Gulf States Newsroom is a partnership among public radio stations in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Alabama. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Last month, the Biden administration sent a letter to Governor John Bell Edwards accusing Louisiana of underfunding Southern University by more than $1.1 billion over the last 30 years. And Southern is just one of 15 historically black colleges and universities that the Biden administration is alleging has been shortchanged. Piper Hutchinson covered this story for the Louisiana Illuminator, and she joins us now for more. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Diane. So tell us about these letters that the Biden administration sent to state governments regarding the underfunding of HBCUs. What exactly is the administration alleging? So the administration sent these letters to 16 governors that have both white and black historically land grant universities, um, alleging that there is an over $12 billion inequity between these two institutions. Um, Here in Louisiana, we have um, LSU and Southern University, both in Baton Rouge, which are land-grant universities, and the Biden administration calculated that Southern had been underfunded to a tune of $1.1 billion compared to its peer institution, LSU. The schools mentioned in the letters were established under the Morrill Acts, the first of which was issued in 1860 and the second in 1890. What exactly are the Morrill Acts and what are they intended to do? So the Acts created land-grant universities, um, which the original batch in uh, 1860 were literal land grants from the federal government to the states to sell the land and establish these universities. Now, before these uh, acts were passed, uh, universities in the United States focused on, you know, classical arts, uh, Latin, and they were very inaccessible to most uh, Americans. The land-grant universities shifted higher education to a focus on agriculture, science, engineering, and military science. And they made higher education accessible to more Americans. They added a huge number of engineers to the workforce, and they really changed the American economy. Now, in 1890, they followed that up with an act focused on former Confederate states. These states either had the option to establish an integrated institution or to create a separate institution for Black Americans. Um, So these did further segregation, but they also uh, made higher education accessible to many uh, Black students. 
And I know the Department of Education calculated how much Louisiana has spent on Southern University compared to how much it spent on LSU from 1987 through 2020. What did it find? So there was a $1.1 billion gap in funding in these two institutions over, I think it was like the past 50 years. We are speaking with Piper Hutchinson, reporter for the Louisiana Illuminator, about the allegations that states have been underfunding HBCUs for decades. Piper, how was it that states were able to go about shortchanging all of these HBCUs without getting caught or punished? Why was there so little oversight over what was happening? So that's a complicated question. Without editorializing too much, there is a well-documented apathy towards HBCUs. That was probably part of it. Also, the federal government hasn't always lived up to its promises in higher education. Just take a look at Title IX and disability accessibility. Another part of it is that federal law also lets states opt out of its match requirement for 1890 institutions and provide a half match, which kind of contributes to like the match requirements for these 1890 institutions being treated as the ceiling for state funding rather than the floor, which contributes to the inequity in funding. What's the response been since since this first came out? What have state leaders had to say about all of this? So, Commissioner of Administration Jay Darden and Commissioner of Higher Education Kim Hunter-Reed both put out statements. Um, Commissioner Darden, who's the budget chief for the state, he cast some doubt on the Biden administration's figures, um, but also pointed out that the state has met its matching requirements during the Edwards administration through budgets passed by the legislature. Of course, that's the only only the last eight years, and we're talking about 50-plus years of funding inequity. I know that New Orleans Representative Troy Carter is now calling for the federal government to close the funding gap in HBCU athletic programs. Tell us about the legislation he introduced. So Troy Carter introduced this legislation um, in concert with other Black legislators across the nation. Um, And it would require the U.S. Department of Education to set up a grant program to provide grants for infrastructure and sports equipment at schools with minimal athletic budgets. So it's not specifically for HBCUs, but Carter thinks it's going to give a big boost to HBCU athletic programs. Um, And you know, schools like LSU have these huge budgets because they're very profitable. They're able to be self-sufficient, although they do receive a small amount of state aid. Southern University, it's a much smaller program, which means they're not able to recruit as many athletes. Um, And, you know, these athletic programs do have an economic impact. So part of Carter's legislation is to target that economic impact by Southern University. And what might happen next? Do you think these schools will finally receive the more than $13 million or any reimbursement that they are owed? So it's a big feat. Um, Students and alumni could sue the state to meet its match requirements. This worked in Maryland, where 
a coalition of students sued and they reached a $577 million settlement over the inequitable funding in that state. Um, the state could tackle it voluntarily, but that's going to be very difficult considering Louisiana's budget constraints. Um, all of Louisiana's universities, um, primarily white and historically black, are still recovering from budget cuts during the Jindal era. Um, so it's a, it's a tall task, especially considering that there is a temporary sales tax that's rolling off in a couple of years that could create more budget constraints. And in Louisiana, whenever there's a budget crisis, higher education is just one of two portions of the state budget that's able to be cut. Um, so fixing this in Louisiana is going to take a lot of work. Um, so it, it's a tall task. Piper, is there anything else you wanted to add or you might want us to know about? So there are a couple of things to keep in mind on this topic. Um, one of them is that this is coming up a lot right now because of the farm bill reauthorization going on in Congress right now. People think about the farm bill in the context of providing subsidies for farmers, um, but they're also a major source of funding for research, teaching, and extension programs. So advocates are hoping that the new bill will help with the funding disparity. Um, but of course, the bill faces some uncertain future with all of the chaos going on in Congress right now. Another thing to keep in mind is that right now that there are zero HBCUs with R1 status, which is the top designation for research universities. Um, in Louisiana, LSU, Tulane, and the University of Louisiana at Lafayette are all R1 and Southern University has the next designation. But if land-grant universities were fully funded, um, there may be an R1 HBCU, which we can only imagine what the impact would be for equity in research. Um, and that would also help with some of the um, funding disparities because they would be able to attract more federal and private grants for research which would help even out funding disparities and salaries, for example. Piper Hutchinson, reporter for the Louisiana Illuminator. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Diane. WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Time for Halloween. Vampires are invading the New Orleans French Quarter, and they await you as they kick off the 107th season for Le Petit Theater with Jack Thorne's edgy play, Let the Right One In, based on the novel by Swedish author John Lindquist. Salvador Menino directs this thriller, and he joins us now. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Hi, it's great to see you. 
straight to chat. This is billed as a brutal vampire myth and coming-of-age love story. I take it this is not for the faint of heart? <laughs> That's two great ways to, to look at it here. I, I've really embraced the love story part of this. It's definitely uh, has some uh, shock value to it, and we try to give you some suspenseful moments as storytellers. But at the core of this story, it's a love story where Two characters are really looking for something in their life and find it in one another. The novel has been adapted for film and a television series in addition to the play. What is it about the play that takes this story to another level of suspense? The script is still very cinematic in nature. Um, it's filled with a lot of very short scenes that move very quickly. What I love about this is the intimacy that we can get on stage in that relationship between the performers and the audience. And we're playing with a lot of really exciting tech elements to heighten that intimacy a little bit with some live feed cameras and things like that. So you're able to get up close to a couple of really beautiful moments that you're not necessarily used to being able to do uh, in the theater. So what is the storyline? Who are the major characters? The story follows a young boy named Oscar. And Oscar is inherently different. He is bullied for being different and he's looking for ways to grow up and to find his people ultimately. And he befriends another teenager. Her name is Ellie. And Ellie just happens to show up in the form of a roughly 200 year old vampire. And Ellie helps Oscar grow up and discover his identity, while simultaneously Ellie is also looking for something in her life. And basically, she needs a, a human to help her achieve her goals and to sustain and to survive. And she adopts Oscar to do that. Now, how did Ellie become a vampire? It's not necessarily stated in the script, which has been a lot of fun. There are some little hints of she has somewhat of a Fabergé egg in her apartment. So we get these hints. Maybe she was alive when artifacts like this were around. And maybe she was given that by somebody. But basically, she's been roughly 13 to 15 for a very long time. And how is the growing friendship between the main characters, Oscar and Ellie, challenged? Um, I would say the big challenge comes in the form of what Ellie wants to share. She's looking for a friend to just accept her for who she is uh, without giving the fact away that she is very different also. And um, the fact that Ellie needs to feed on human flesh to, to survive is quite the thing to hide from an audience and from the town. And so that secret is pretty sacred. And, and when that secret is challenged, she has to kind of come around and find a new way to, to reach him. Now, what does the title Let the Right One In refer to? For me, it's about letting the right people in your life and keeping the door closed on the ones that don't help you. I see this play as people who are ultimately looking for um, sanctuary and a place to feel comfortable and to be themselves. And ultimately, they let each other in and uh, they keep out those who uh, can't help them grow in the most positive way possible. It's described as a brutal vampire myth. 
tell us more about the themes that are being addressed in this work. The brutality of this play is uh, comes in many forms of just Ellie's basic need for survival, the way Oscar's bullied. We get an up-close and personal look at these moments. So you see a lot of things on stage that maybe you don't normally see, a lot of blood gushing on the stage. <laughs> and ultimately, I, I see this as more of a suspense than a horror kind of experience. I like the idea that our audiences have to lean in because they don't know what's around the corner and what's going to pop out at them necessarily versus just sitting back and kind of being entertained by what they're seeing on stage. They have to lean in a little bit more and and engage with the story because you really don't know what's what's going to come around the, the next turn. Now, are there any trigger warnings for those who dare to step out for the evening? There are loud noises in this play. There are definitely some surprises. And there are moments of attacks from a vampire <laughs> that um, lead to, you know, some blood on the stage and some things that you're not used to necessarily seeing. A little bit of that shock value definitely comes along with this play. But I do think we've dealt with all of these moments in exciting and creative ways to keep you engaged and not run you out the door, to, but to hopefully bring you in closer. And who are the major players in the cast? So our cast is anchored by two wonderful young performers, uh, Dalton Major, who's playing Oscar, and Kaylee Sanders, who is playing Ellie. And the two of them are really um, growing tremendously throughout this experience and are surprising our entire team around every corner. I, I always love working with young artists and seeing them flourish in new experiences and new challenges. And audiences, what will they take away from this experience? I think they'll walk away feeling like they've seen a play that they haven't seen before and having an experience that maybe they haven't had inside of a theater. Um, seeing some tech that maybe they've never experienced in a theater and uh, in a live performance situation. One of the first things we heard was, what a beautiful love story. And I think they'll walk away with um, a beautiful tale as well. Director Salvatore Menino, thanks so much. Thank you, Diane. Le Petit Theatre presents Jack Thorne's Let the Right One In. Performances run through October 22nd. More info is online at lepetittheatre.com. From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Diane Mack. Thanks to our guest, the Gulf States Newsroom's Danny McArthur. Reporter for the Louisiana Illuminator, Piper Hutchinson. And director of Le Petit's production of Let the Right One In, Salvatore Menino. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber, and our assistant producer is Aubrey Procell. Our engineer is Garrett Pittman. 
You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation.